What's the podcast called? Oh, uh, it's called uh, Anti Capitalist Radio. Ah, cool. Yep. I'll send you a link or something. Okay. Right. Welcome to this episode of Anti Capitalist Radio. Uh, my name is Simon Hanna. I'm joined today by Stuart McGill, a football fan and political activist, and also the co author of the recently published book, The Roaring Red Front co-author with uh, Vincent Raisin, which is a travelogue guide to the world's top left-wing football clubs. I want to caveat uh, this entire podcast by letting the listeners know that I know very little about football, probably uh, less than I even do about politics. Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. No problem. I wanted to start off with uh, a question which you kind of start the book with. What is the void? What is the void? That's a potentially huge question there, Simon, but in the purely footballing context, maybe. Uh, The great Eduardo Galeano, the Uruguayan Marxist and historian, a big fan of uh, Nacional, uh, the, the, well, I guess you'd have to say the second biggest team in um, in Montevideo. Galeano wrote about the void as most histories of most countries fail to talk about the love that their people have for football in particular. And he said, you look, how can you write a history of Brazil, Argentina, maybe Uruguay in particular, uh, without talking about the fact that so many people are besotted by football and the passion which it gives to people? Uh, And football is something which lights up their lives to a large extent without coming to dominate, without being toxic. But the love of football is something which is defining for many people. Similar here, how could you write, say, a history of Scotland in the 19th and 20th centuries without talking about the football? And aside from the sectarian aspects there, right, it is the passion of so many people. I think what he's getting at is that uh, football is, uh, sorry, history is written largely by the middle class who regard football as something which is to be despised. It stops the working class from revolting. And it's also despised, on the other hand, by many people on the left because it stops the working class from revolting. It's a distraction, uh, both of which views I disagree with, as you won't be surprised to hear. So you feel that the that the reason for the void is kind of an unholy alliance of middle class academics um, who don't see sport as something that is really valuable to consider in you know social and political life. Uh, and also left-wing historians, left-wing kind of social theorists who are kind of distrustful of sport because they assume it's either a capitalist distraction from what's important and or that it's um, football firms full of right-wing neo-Nazis, Zeke Heiling, nationalism, you know, being like beating each other up and therefore it's something which is which is quite negative. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think a lot of middle class people don't really understand uh, sport, uh, don't want to engage with it and do see it as a a, a practice or a, a pastime for the working class and the working class that they don't want to have anything to do with, not some kind of um, heroic idealized working class in the case of the left or some bunch of uh, aggressive, arrogant boors in the views of many middle-class people. Uh, And I've had friends in Spain who told me they were very excited to find out I was writing a book with my friend next door, Vince. Uh, But then when they found out it was about football, expressed no interest whatsoever, because they do take this very doctrinaire view that football is a distraction from the struggle. And I'll tell you why it's tosh, and it's very simple. When you look in this country at the real centres of 
of, of the, the Labour movement, where there has been the greatest militancy in fighting back. You're talking about the West of Scotland, you're talking about the North East, you're talking about the North West. Um, you're talking about South Wales, where it's rugby rather than football, which is the passion of many of the people. But these are areas where sport is big, and in particular, football is big. And these tend to be the places where we've had uh, the Labour movement at its most successful and militant over the years. So what would you say then to those people on the left who are a bit distant from, you know, sport as a as a big working class pursuit? Um, you, you actually quote in the book a very a good quote from the Socialist Party in 2010, mm-hmm. where they say football stadiums or rugby stadiums, like in particular, are, are places where you get mass working class gatherings. There's not many places left or there's not many places that capitalism allows for these kinds of things. I mean, apart from the workplace. Um, and some you know, kind of sporting cultural activities. Uh, it's very limited when and where working class people gather. So uh, it's important not to be, uh, what's the word, not to be uh, distant or absent <laughs> in these spaces. I would say, go to a couple of matches, talk to people there. You'll find a variety of views there. You'd be quite surprised uh, at some of the views you hear from people who you might immediately dismiss as potentially a bunch of fascists. But most importantly, football is important and see it as important. Um, I talk in the in the final chapter about the work that the Germans did with the fan project. They were quite concerned that the neo-Nazis were taking over. We'll talk more about this later in terms of the growth of St. Pauli. So they sent people in there with the specific task of turning people away from that rightward lean. And if you ever watch the Bundesliga, I mean, most clubs, the majority of players are African now. And apart from a very few clubs, mostly based in the former uh, east of the country, the former DDR, you don't hear any racism. Most clubs have a, a, a general sort of liberal, tolerant feel about them, which is quite different, say, from Italy these days, unfortunately. And things are always more complicated than they seem. Well, I remember the 70s, whenever I first started going to football, Millwall, were led by a guy, the Millwall firm was led by a guy called Tiny. And uh, Chelsea, one of the Chelsea co-leaders was One-Armed Babs. Now, these were then and now two of the more racist firms in football, but Tiny and Babs were both black. And so there was that opportunity there to get in and to try and go ahead and use football as a mechanism, as they did in Germany, to go ahead and spread not a particular political viewpoint, but a certain kind of liberal, inclusive viewpoint. Yeah, because these are people that are role models and role models are very important for young men in particular. Uh, and so had we got in there earlier and had we been less tolerant of some of the racist garbage you used to hear well, throughout the 70s, the 80s and well into the 90s and done something specific to stop that, that could have changed the whole content of not just what happened in football, but the conversations people had. And the expectations people had about the behaviour of, you know, towards other communities, particularly black people, then we could have made a difference. And I'm not saying Germany is perfect, but when you look at what the Germans have done, the AFD has found maybe about 11 or 12 percent. That's proved to be about its ceiling. Whereas in Italy, where the fan movement was allowed to go ahead and become dominated by right wing figures, uh, we know what's happening with Italy now. We've got basically the uh, defence of Mussolini in charge. So football and football politics does make a difference. And we shouldn't and cannot ignore it. Let's talk a little bit more about that kind of class struggle or the ideological battle that goes on on the terraces and in the football clubs and in particularly in the firms, because you have some very interesting examples where, um, yeah, working class fans went in and they really tried to shift the culture. Um, And of course, it's, you know, 
if you're on the terraces and you hear people doing racist chants or anything like that it's about how you deal with that and of course it's not just you know storming off or calling people names often it's a conversation or it's a discussion and and it's that it's that fight to try and isolate the hardcore really dangerous violent kind of extreme right-wing elements and so being able to build a positive political force on the terraces i thought those were some of the most interesting bits in the book because i guess there's a bit of a danger that the way that the the British have dealt with it compared to the Germans with their with their fan project. Um, the British one is very I don't know it's it, it's a bit too liberal. You know it's the it's the rainbow coloured shoelaces and the you know show racism the red card. Which I'm not saying these are bad campaigns in terms of their message, but they seem very corporate and very external coming in. Like it doesn't seem that it's organic from the fans necessarily. Do you think Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, to a certain extent in polls, and it won't reach a large number of people because it does seem like something like, again, it does seem like middle class people telling some working class people what to do and what to think. And I need, to, I think it needs to be a, a broader approach and to a certain extent, a more directly prescriptive approach. And also uh, it needs to be more aggressive in certain areas. Um, St. Pauli is interesting in that um, St. Pauli was and still is the second club in Hamburg. Uh, I mean, I first read about them in, I think, in the 1980s in When Saturday Comes. Those days, very easy to get there. It was the Bohemian Club. And um, yeah, you just went across there and walked in. Now it's really difficult to get a ticket for any St. Pauli game. And the brand has become huge. And it grew so quickly because in the 80s, uh, SV Hamburg, the big city rival, uh, like a lot of terraces in Germany, became taken over by Nazis. And you say you can't change a football team, but if you're hearing people make Nazi salutes next year every week, and what is mostly a liberal city in Hamburg, then you're going to take off. So they went off, started going to St. Pauli, and the St. Pauli culture arose from there. Uh, and that is something which uh, has become a global phenomenon, and they are still the governor football club. Um, uh, you may have picked up from my uh, chapter on St. Pauli that uh, I don't approve of everything about them and they are a little bit up their own strata, but they do a good job and I'm glad they're there. And this is one of the things that kicked off the project. Went to St. Pauli, liked it, had a good time there, met some good, interesting people. Uh, and then we got tickets through our contacts for the St. Pauli versus Hamburg derby. And there were, I didn't go because unfortunately my son was ill, but there were people from all over Europe there, from, uh, from Marseille, uh, from from Madrid, Rio Vallecano, and you got the re and from Athens too, and you got the real sense of the global network, and that's kicked off the whole idea. And that's one thing that I'd like to encourage through the book, and we're working on that now. I'll talk to you about a few of those projects a wee bit later. One of the projects I was interested in, Red Star uh, in Paris, and mm. the Red Star Labs about how they uh, they don't just see their role as being training grounds for young men who want to play football but also uh, trying to be educational and, and kind of pastoral about a whole range of things that people might be interested in. I was, I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, Red Star do very see, um, see themselves as having a positive role in the community and making people, not making people, but certainly trying to convince people to buy into the Red Star culture. Uh, and uh, we were probably, that was probably the club and the area which we most enjoyed visiting from various points of view, a very friendly bunch of people. It's interesting, when you go to those um, outer Parisian suburbs, they're very anxious to let you know, it's not Paris, we're not Paris, we're somewhere. Uh, and I mean, it's only about half an hour, maybe 40 minutes walk due north of the Gare du Nord, it's Paris to all intents and purposes. Um, 
And this was a club that didn't really have any significant airs and graces. We met the uh, Vince, spoke to the main guy, uh, who's very much bought into the ethos. And uh, we met the, uh, the marketing director, uh, a very um, pleasant young man who is very keen that the club, even if it does grow, maintain it maintains its character. After we met them, uh, I think um, an American venture capital fund took a major share in them. So we're still looking to see what happens there. And this was something that caused a serious chagrin amongst a large part of the supports. So that'll be an interesting dynamic, what happens there over the next year or so. Um, interesting too about the neighborhood. It's a traditionally left-wing neighborhood. When I spoke to my French students about that, they said, oh yeah, it would be up there. That's a proper leftist area and always has been. Uh, and so I guess we become like the people around us and we inherit a certain culture. Certainly people, it's a neighborhood team, Red Star in Paris. Uh, yeah, it, the hotel we went in had a big picture of Karl Marx in the dining room area. So this is a proper lefty area. What is it that makes an area left wing? You know, because I think there's a bit of a tendency for some people on the left to say, well, this team's got a very working class football fan base and therefore is temperamentally more left wing. And say one of the reasons why, say, the Chelsea firms kind of moved so far to the right uh, in the 80s and 90s was, you know, is more like middle class people joining them, you know, with like different politics. And I, I, I'm not sure how accurate that is really in terms of just such a like simplistic look at different class elements. Because I mean, what you describe in your book is, for instance, quite a few places where, you know, there'll be two clubs in a in a city or a town, one's left wing and one's more right wing. Um, is there a general thing that makes that kind of thing happen? Or is it is it just really down to the history of each individual club? History of the club and history of the area, and to a certain extent, uh, the the actions of various strong role models at pivotal points. I mean, it's an interesting point and a difficult one to what makes any area, what makes any culture, what it is. Uh, when you look at something like Chelsea, it was just a straightforward case of late 60s, early 70s, a dominant skinhead culture. And uh, there were certainly black skinheads in those days. Uh, but then the whole skinhead movement moved more to the right for various reasons. Uh, and uh, that seemed to dominate the culture there as well. When you look at the politics of the 70s too, and the pressure on many people, the pressure on working class communities falling apart, etc. It was no real surprise that uh, uh, young working class guys fell prey to the the uh, the attractions of the National Front, so-called, and others. I remember the National Front had out leaflets at Arsenal in the 70s, and one of the guys that had out the leaflets was a black guy. It became a strange part of the culture there. Uh, and um, Millwall, of course, is Millwall is still that area is a kind of white bastion in what's an otherwise very black area. And to a certain extent, you get that siege mentality there. Um, and when you look at someone like Cazenza, a long way from Millwall, the guys in Cazenza, and Cazenza is way, way south in Italy and it's way down on the instep of the boot of Italy in Calabria. And the guys there told us that most people in Italy were actually quite ring and certainly in Calabria. But in Cosenza, you have a big university there. And there were a couple of prominent professors in the 70s who were associated with the Bragata Rossi, the Red Brigades. Uh, and they changed the culture uh, amongst a certain part of the football support there, amongst a certain part of the, the working class movement there as well. So Cosenza does have that left wing element to it. And that's reflected in the support for the club. So there's a whole bunch of features. There's also this uh, theory, um, schismogenesis, which uh, David Graeber 
and David Wengrow talk about in this book, the a, a book I recommend, though I don't agree with everything in it, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. And they talk in there about how various cultures uh, develop and schismogenesis, basically cultures develop in opposition to what they have around it to go ahead and emphasize their, their how different they are. So St. Pauli became left-wing, schismogenesis working against S.V. Hamburg. In Glasgow now, Rangers have become much more of a right-wing club. Though I wouldn't say by no means all Rangers fans are right-wing, but uh, in opposition to Celtic, who've become more and more left-wing, partly through association with the Irish cause and uh, the Palestinian cause too. So sometimes people are just being contrary and want to uh, forge their own identity. I guess a long way of saying it's complicated, but it's certainly not down to middle class people on the terraces or on the seats influencing the politics. It's not down to that at all. Yeah, I remember um, one of the first things I got involved in London when I became politically active was uh, when the National Front was standing in um, Bermondsey South in the 2001 general election. I went on anti-fascist leafleting at uh, uh, the Bermondsey South train station and it was a Millwall at home match and uh, every train disgorged a lot of Millwall fans. We were There was about six of us handing out leaflets and... Um, a lot of them kind of ignored us and I mean some to be fair obviously took the leaflets but there was definitely quite a few Millwall fans who were sort of Zeke Heiling swearing at us saying oh it's a red front you know anti-fascism red front I, I didn't know anything about Millwall like to be honest because uh, you know I grew up in Dorset so uh, that's my that's why my knowledge of football is so is so limited but that was certainly a kind of and I talked to other people on the left and of course it was like oh you know the culture at Millwall is everyone hates us we don't care in Bermondsey there was a lot of white flight there from places like Brixton and Peckham which you know when there was big immigration after the war and white people that didn't want to live in those areas moved there but also I think the count like the local councils had a had a role to play in terms of the way that they allocated housing to people and they you know, they did put all, you know, more black people in one area, more white people in another area and becomes part of the culture of a local community. And certainly the football fans can re can reflect that culture. Yeah. And there's plenty of local rivalry in southeast London anyway. You've got the, you know, the Bermondsey mob won't get on too well with the Elton mob. And that's not the, a colour or race thing. That's just a postcode thing. And when you accentuate that with putting different people of different colours in neighbourhoods, and again, I guess it's the schismogenesis. We define ourselves in terms of what we are not and we celebrate what we're not, so it aggravates things. And you get a lot of disaffected white youth. And again, the left has to try and understand to why people feel this way. What happened up in Knowsley was awful. What's happening now in Dublin? This is a growing problem in Ireland too. But I was chatting to some family a while ago in the Republic, and they say there's no excuse for the, the growing right-wing element there. However, they have a housing crisis there, which is as bad as ours, if not a little bit worse. And when you see people from outside, or you can give the impression people from outside are coming in and they're getting all this whenever you get nothing. And this this is an echo of many conversations I had under terraces in the 70s and 80s. They get more than we do. They come over here. We get nothing. They get all that. And again, this is garbage perpetuated by the press to a large extent, but it resonates. And there are people who will exploit it. And you got a, you're a disaffected young white guy in those areas. Then when those views are voiced by people that you look up to because they're hard or because they have a certain level of toughness about them, have a reputation, then you're going to follow them. Uh, then a bunch of, uh, say, you know, respectable middle class intellectuals. That's just the way things are. And I guess that's a crucial thing about, about how fascism operates in particular, you know, like fascists do make class arguments. That's sort of that's one of the things that politically separates them from 
just nationalists or like Tory. When the BNP got a huge number of councillors embarking in Dagenham about, you know, 10, 12 years ago, that again, like you said, was because they were handing out leaflets saying that immigrants were getting all the social housing and, you know, mm. white British natives aren't getting anything. And that's exactly, you know, the same message that was being put out in Knowlesley. The government's putting up asylum seekers in hotels, £100 a night, and it's a cost of living crisis. You're not getting anything while these people who have just arrived in the country are getting all this stuff. And of course, that, you know, that resonates. And that's also how you start with a class argument and turn it into a race argument. So, you know, like that's, you know, that's always a very dangerous aspect of fascist kind of politics. I think also they're able to make people feel that that there are people like them. I was chatting to one of my students a while ago, who comes from a, a, a big council scheme down in South London. And she said she loved Mick Lynch and Eddie Dempsey because she, there's people that look like me and talk like me, but they're talking sense up there and they're talking cogency and with knowledge. And she liked it. It was people like her talking that way, but she's of a general left-wing disposition. All uh, right, But if you get other people who are from, say, a similar estate but don't have a similar disposition, they're going to feel the same about people that look like them and talk like them coming out with some fascist tosh. Uh, and there is that appeal that we have to fight. You talk a lot in, in the concluding bit of the book, and and, and you have done um, previously just now on the podcast about kind of the role of role models and um, how important they can be, particularly for younger, you know, teenage boys. Although obviously not exclusively, mm-hmm. um, and that really comes across as one of the concerns that you're talking about in the book in terms of who people look up to. And obviously, this has become a new thing. Well, not a new thing, but it's this has become a an even more important discussion around the influence of people like Andrew Tate and that kind yeah. of toxic, violent, misogynist um, masculinity uh, and just how popular his ideas are amongst teenage boys who often come across with a lot of bravado, like they run the world, but actually are feeling incredibly insecure about themselves and their, and their place in the world. T- tell me a little bit more about how you feel some of these left-wing football firms and left-wing football clubs can contribute to a more positive role model? I think it's one part of a bigger problem. The popularity of Tate is no is no surprise to me. Um, I'm glad to say that my son uh, and all his mates uh, regard him with complete and utter horror, and we have to remember that the popularity of Tate remains a minority thing, despite the fact that he says billions have seen his videos, but I suspect he's fiddled that. You know, Tate is an ultimate con man. But he does appeal to a certain number of people and uh, the violent, aggressive lifestyle and attitude, um, people who can have a row, that appeals to a number of people. I was brought up in that myself and I'm sometimes susceptible to that, which is, I guess, why I'm aware of it. Uh, And my father and my grandfather were both old fashioned Glasgow hard men. But my father in particular, he kind of knew it was wrong. Uh, and uh, he tried to lead me away from it. And certainly my kids don't are not brought up in any of that. But I'm aware of the I'm aware of how, how how powerful it can be. All right. The, was it the potency of cheap music that uh, Noel Card talked about? This is very potent stuff. Um, my son's friend, Jack, I mean, he was always a bit of an idiot, but he ended up going to West Ham a lot, even though West Ham are not the local team here. And he's bought 100% into that toxic West Ham culture. If he'd gone somewhere like Dulwich Hamlet, it could have been different. So 
very quickly, if football uh, wants to do something about this, they need to actually get in there and have role models and encourage role models that do not buy into all this macho bullshit and this aggressive toxicity. I won't even call it masculinity. I don't regard it as masculinity at all. I think this is just a perversion of the human spirit and it's associated with certain darker aspects, say, of male aggression and male sexuality. But I don't think it's masculinity. I think it's just appalling behavior which needs to be stamped on and we need to make it uncool and other aspects of male behavior masculinity which are you know, which are cool all right should be projected and football clubs can play a certain role in that but there has to be a definite effort by the clubs to get i guess detoxify that part of their support which gets respect and admiration from young men it's a big project i'm not sure how we do it but if we start to do it and see as a problem then we can maybe get somewhere you said that one of the key ways that more left-wing football firms took over or, or more left-wing fans took over in uh, quite a few of the key clubs that you talk about is that what they emphasised was anyone can be a fan of this club, um, anyone from the local community. Well, I mean, obviously anyone in the world could be a fan of a football club. It's nice if it's rooted in a local community and lots of people who live uh -huh. and work near each other also support the same team. And that is cuts across, you know, race, gender, sexuality, anything like that. Whereas, of course, the, you know, the really right-wing football firms are only make it about their particular ethnicity or their particular national um, nationality. Um, and I thought that was quite good when you talked about the uh, perversion of the human spirit, the kind of progressive, nice left ideals of humans working together, coming together, collaborating together, building communities together, is much more positive than people who are saying, no, we have to exclude, we have to remove people, these people don't belong, these people aren't mm -hmm. welcome. Why? Well, they don't look like us or they don't talk the same language or they don't have the same religion or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was actually very, very useful in the examples that you talk with the clubs in the book as kind of a, a difference of virtue, I think, a difference of understanding the world and being in the world, which I thought was, you know, was quite inspiring. Well, uh, um, one of my favourite clubs is um, uh, Raya Vallecano in Vallecas, which is a big part of uh, Madrid. It's uh, about 30 minutes walk due southeast of uh, of Atocha Station. Like I say in the book, I think a bit like Lewisham, but with significantly better wine. Uh, and Vallecas is a big, varied area. You could be an elephant in castle down there, actually, because yeah, there's so many different, uh, there's a lot of Colombians down there, uh, quite a few Africans. It's quite unlike, unlike the regular part of Madrid. Uh, the people who go and watch uh, Raya Vallecano will tend to be um, white Spaniards, but they're very much for uh, for Vallecas and very much for the principles of Vallecas, the inclusivity. And again, importantly, they're not people who are afraid of a rut. I mean, Raya Vallecano, the Cadiz firm, uh, San Pauli, certainly, these are not people that walk away from a fight. And again, that is something which is admired by a, a certain number of people. So I'm not saying anybody should go ahead and pursue a fight, but people do admire toughness and hardness. I mean, Christ, the whole of uh, British culture is about the admiration of toughness and hardness for people like Churchill, the empire, all that sort of tosh. So it's what how people are. I think we need to recognize that and exploit it where we can for the purpose of good rather than for some toxic tribalism. I think that's also important thinking about the class aspect of that because i think there's a bit of a, a middle class feminist thing where it's like women are soft and gentle and being tough and you know being able to stand up for yourself and yeah necessarily fight for what you believe in can be seen as always just being violent or whatever but of course you know 
lots of working class women are just as tough as working class men. You know, like if you go on anti-fascist demonstrations, there's there's working class left wing oh, women yeah. there who are fighting alongside their comrades against the neo-Nazis. And, you know, I think that's like an important class argument to make. Absolutely. Interesting. Um yeah, we saw relatively few women most places we went. It still tends to be a guy thing. Um, Sympoli, well, people should read the book. I'm actually quite critical about the attitudes of some people in Sympoli towards women. I think there is a toxicity there, which goes back to the neighbourhood and uh, the kind of history of prostitution there. Uh, and um, we're quite critical of that. Um, Vallecas, there were probably a good number of women. But Red Star Paris, that's the only place where we saw a good proportion of women there. And uh, I would say... in general mate women are much tougher than men if men had to have the babies the whole species would die out yeah women are a hell of a lot tougher than us i want to talk to you a little bit because um i also know you as someone who is very good at martial arts someone who's uh, trained me on a few occasions looking at this you know rise of sort of some of these far-right organizations i mean like you talked about internationally you know the dangers what's going on in italy and the growth of the populace you know, authoritarian right around Trump and Bolsonaro and obviously Le Pen and, you know, her followers in France. I mean, it's, you know, like we're living in very dangerous times where mm-hmm. these ideas are percolating and, you know, gripping the minds of millions of people uh, and kind of socialist ideas. We need to find ways to get them across in a much better way to more people, especially in the context of, you know, climate change and everything like that. But when you think about the growth of some of these far right organizations, which base themselves on violence, I, like I think it's an important discussion point because I think there's some people who just don't get it. They think that sort of groups like Patriotic Alternative or Britain First, they're just sort of extreme Tories. And obviously, to some degree, they are extreme Tories. But what makes them specifically fascist is that they are street movements. They want to build a presence on the streets, they want to intimidate migrants asylum seekers they want to break up left-wing meetings and rallies like it's that politics of fear obviously they don't go around all you know with swastikas on these days because britain is a country that has a tradition of fighting nazis and so they don't you know obviously they're not so stupid they do that but nevertheless their politics are out of what mussolini and hitler were doing in the 1920s and 1930s so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you think the role of you know, physically preparing and, but also the politics that we need in order to be able to take these kind of people on. Um, in terms of physical preparedness, then uh, I'm doing classes on uh, for my, my party every um, the one a month on a Sunday. Uh, and hopefully we'll be doing something uh, with you guys in unison sometime shortly. I don't do um, public classes anymore, but uh, I recommend that people, yeah, get in touch with, uh, I can certainly let you know some uh, people who are sympathetic martial artists and to get trained with them because, um, uh, well, you've seen you've seen the evidence that it works. We had that little bit of aggro a couple of years ago with the guy with the stick. Uh, it's important people know this stuff, uh, and it is used for good purposes. Um, will there be a, is a confrontation with these people inevitable? I think maybe at some point, yeah, it probably is. We talked earlier about making forecasts. It's very difficult, but uh, given there are there are such fissures in our society now there are so many things which divide us uh, and which get people really emotional about you can unfortunately see something pretty bad happening 
And again, if anybody genuinely believes that if we are successful on the left and we mount a real challenge to capitalism, that the capitalist class and its lackeys will give up without a fight, uh, then they haven't read history. Yeah, so I do see it as being something which is essential. It's not for everybody, uh, but it's uh, something which... Uh, if I were a young man right now and had responsibility to my family and if I had um, God, like some guys I know down in Chelton, you know, white middle class guys, but all their friends are black and they're appalled by some of the racism that they encounter when they talk to other white friends of theirs and their training. So, yeah, I think we need to be prepared in terms of the politics we need. I think it needs to be a politics which um, which to a certain extent infuses people. Like St. Pauli, you look at the way St. Pauli infused people get the loyalty. So I'm talking here about the aesthetics of it to a certain extent, uh, rather than just kind of detailed descriptions. Like I went to, I did a seminar a couple of nights ago about modern monetary theory and the deficit. And you get into some quite complicated issues there because I used to work in a bank and I'm a economist by profession as well. Uh, but I wouldn't get that stuff out there on slogans. You need stuff which makes a more emotional appeal and you have to associate the things we believe in with stuff which is cool and which actually matters and resonates with people. Not easy, but this is what we need to do to be able to take over. And we need to get back. We need to get back that element, I guess, of a phrase which is overused, the white working class, right? Which seems to which seems to have gone right to um to the Tories. When you look at who voted Labour last time, it did seem to be, for want of a better sort of term, what we used to call the polyocracy. It was uh, certainly in London academic, educated people. A large part of the white working class has gone to the Tories. There's issues there associated with Brexit, immigration, etc. But we need to get them back. Uh, and that's going to be the biggest challenge we have. And not just back for the next election, uh, but back for the future struggles ahead, because things will not become very different if Starmer's Labour gets in. Brilliant. Right. So, Stuart, your book, The Roaring Red Front, it is out. Pitch Publishing. Uh, we'll put a link to uh, where you can get it in the description. Uh, obviously, if someone is a left-wing football fan, they will probably just get it anyway because it's right up their street. Give me a short summary about if someone's not a football fan, what's in it for them? Don't see it like a football book. I think you probably agree with this yourself, Simon. It's a book uh, which is centred around football, but it's basically a vaguely drunken and often quite amusing travelogue around various parts of the world where people often don't go. Uh, and one thing it does show is just how welcoming so many people in these places are, because we had a great time doing this book. It was tough work to a certain extent, uh, but you'll just see the, the nice welcome we got from regular people all over the planet. Uh, and it does... Uh, uh, contained various, in my point of view, interesting discourses about Peronism, something I've never really understood until I spoke to a few people over in Argentina. Uh, the Palestinian movement in Santiago, I spoke to the communist mayor of Retiro in northern uh, Santiago, 65% share of the vote. Yeah, it just tells you about a part of the world, various parts of the world that we don't hear much about in mainstream discourse. Brilliant. That, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, I would recommend the book. Um, I learned a lot about it and I just thought it was really great. The political bits that you pick up are so important. Uh, and yeah, like it's a great it's a great read about towns, parts of cities and groups of people that, you know, often don't get talked about or only get talked about 
you know, by people who haven't really visited or, you know, tried to experience the culture which really motivates them. I think that was Well, I guess that's what we're talking about early on. We're talking about the void there. These are people that have lived in the void and we're trying to uh, take them out of that. That's quite right. Right, Stuart, thank you very much. Um, Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you very much, mate. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Anti-Capitalist Radio. Don't forget to subscribe and share. If you want to get in touch with us, we're anticapitalistresistance.org.